2: Hi everybody, welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today we're welcoming Stephen Sloman, who is a Professor of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University, where he has worked since 1992. We're discussing his recent book, which is written with Philip Fernback, and it's called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. So Stephen, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So what inspired you to write this book?
3: Well, um, two things. One is that I've been studying cognition for a very long time, and uh, I had some things to say about it. And those things seem to be compatible with something I observed uh, as I watched the Sunday morning talk shows every week, which is that the state of our discourse is incredibly superficial. I just, you know, couldn't believe what I see on TV um every sunday morning um or you know any any news show in fact or just thinking about how well i understand issues around me um i i just noticed how superficial my knowledge is and the knowledge of the people i talk to and the knowledge of the experts who or the so called experts that uh i see on tv and so i had some ideas that put it all together and exp- blamed it as using the principles of cognitive science, and that's what the book is about.
2: So can you explain um, what you mean by all of this? A lot of people listening may not be aware um, what the knowledge illusion actually is.
3: Sure. So the knowledge illusion is the fact that people think they understand how things work better than in fact they do. So this has been demonstrated in the laboratory originally by a great psychologist at Yale named Frank Kyle and his students and what they did was they asked people to rate how well they understood how simple everyday objects worked like uh, pen, ballpoint pens and toilets and helicopters, stuff like that. And people seemed to think they understood pretty well. They gave a reasonably high rating on a scale of their own, own understanding. And then Kyle said to them, okay, explain. Tell us how these things in fact work in as much detail as you can. And what he found was that people could hardly explain at all. They would stumble and say things but they really didn't understand. And so when he then again asked them how well they understood, their ratings went down. In other words, people themselves admitted that they didn't understand as well as they thought they had. And I and Mike and Phil Fernbach and some colleagues have shown this um, in the domain of politics. So this is true about political policies as well. People rate their understanding as high until you ask them to explain, and then they discover that they don't understand things as well as they thought they did.
2: So, you know, I, I, one of the reasons why I was drawn to this book was actually because of this, because, you know, you, you see it all the time and, um, and, and people also ask me, um, especially with dealing with Lyme disease, about the, the ignorance about it. And I don't have an answer for them of why there's so much denial. And I think that your book really just explained it, is that we think we understand something that we don't.
3: Right, and um, medical issues are just perfect examples of this. So the way we describe the issue in the book is that the world is incredibly complex. You know, there's just, there's complexity everywhere. Even if you think about something as simple as a ballpoint pen, there's so much that goes into understanding how it works like to really understand the ballpoint pen you'd have to be a master of fluid dynamics and you'd have to be a master of material science and You'd have to be a master of hand dynamics to understand why they're shaped the way they are, and you'd have to be under a master of economics to understand why they sell so well. So even something that simple is incredi- incredibly complex, and no one individual can understand everything about it. When you turn to the human body, uh, forget it. I mean, things are, you know, out-of-control complex. And, and so there is no one person who understands everything about the human body. And indeed, um, real expertise is generally very, very narrow with respect to biological things, just because they're so complex.
2: You know, so how do we even understand the depth of of our own ignorance, you know. Reading your book, I was like, "Well, you know, I don't really understand how a toilet works. It's not something I've ever had to fix or deal with." And you know, that's one of your examples. Mm-hmm. And so, when there's these these simple things that obviously we have and we're in contact every day, and then we get to the more complex things about health or politics or or you know, all just how everything is everything. How do we know what we don't know?
3: Well, that's really tough, and it takes uh, a lot of not only introspection to appreciate what it is we do know, but we have to pay attention to... The people around us and the things around us, um, in order to appreciate how much information is out there that we haven't assimilated. So I think to fully understand this, we have to sort of think about human beings a little more deeply. Um, so people don't carry a lot of information in their own brains. In fact. There's a famous uh, cognitive scientist who estimated that, the, that people over their lifetimes acquire about one gigabyte of information, which, you know, I don't know if you should take that number too seriously, but even if it's off by a factor of 10, even if we carry 10 gigabytes of information or one-tenth of a gigabyte, it's still subsist less than your laptop computer holds. In fact, it's substantially less than a flash drive can hold these days. So the brain actually doesn't retain a huge amount of information. And so what human beings do, like all organisms, is that we forage for information outside ourselves. So we use our bodies, for instance, we use our fingers to count, right? We use our hands and arms to gesture in order to communicate. And it turns out that gesture actually also helps us to think. We solve problems better when we're gesturing. We use the world. So if I, if I go to Calgary for the first time and I have to um, find your office, say, then I will probably use the structure of the city to help me navigate. I'll use street signs. I'll certainly use maps, which are entities that exist outside my brain. Right? Um, I use my whiteboard. I use my email to help me plan my day. So we use things outside us all the time. But the number one primary thing we use is other people. Right? There's information in other people's heads. And that is part of the information we use to get by every day, to make decisions, even you know, big decisions like who we should vote for, but also small decisions like whether we should cross the street. I mean, I have to think about the knowledge that the driver who's coming towards me has when I'm deciding whether or not that driver is going to hit me when I cross the street. So information that's in other people's heads um, is critical at all times. So your question was, how do we know what we don't know? So a lot of that is about appreciating what it is that other people know, right? And appreciating not just other people, but what the internet knows or what maps know, right? What information is encoded in the tools we use every day. So just appreciating that A lot of what we do is, by virtue of information that is outside our heads, reveals that we're making use of stuff that we don't know. So it's really a matter of sort of being humble and appreciating how much use we make of the world around us and of other people at all times.
2: So uh, is this what you call in your book the community of knowledge?
3: That's exactly what we call the community of knowledge, right? So the, the basic idea of the book is that when we think about human thought, we shouldn't think about it as a process that goes on inside the skull. Rather, we should think about it as a process that goes on among people. So it goes on among small groups of people like you and I are right now having a conversation and we're feeding off each other and there are thoughts that emerge from our conversation or if we're at um, the Christmas dinner table, then there are conversations that are going to be held around the table. One person will have an idea and another person will respond to that and the third person will, you know, make a joke based on that. So the whole process of conversation and thought is one that involves multiple people. With human beings, in fact, sometimes the groups of people are tremendously large, and sometimes they involve millions and tens of millions of people. So in some sense, there's a community of Democrats in the U.S., and there's a community of Republicans in in the U.S., and there's a community of liberals in Canada. And it's not that they all think exactly the same way, but there is a set of principles there's a style of thought, um, and these things are interdependent. So when I'm expressing my political view, I'm not just expressing my own personal view, but I'm expressing the view of my community. And I, and I actually think that's why conversation is often so fraught, and you know, why it is that we get so defensive often uh, about our positions, especially these days. It's because when we're arguing, we're not just arguing for ourselves, but we're rather representing our communities, and and that's very important to us. That's our social identity, that we're not just arguing for ourselves, we're arguing for other people too. So it becomes an emotional process.
2: So what happens when we think different than our community? It, you know we disagree with something that's, that's integral to the community we're part of?
3: Um, yeah, well that's, um, that's a great question and the answer is going to depend a lot on the nature of our community. So, you know, the simple answer is uh, we start, we can become a pariah, right? We can be sent outside and, and um, become alienated from the rest of our community. And and that certainly happens all the time in religious communities um, uh, and in other kinds of communities as well. If you don't buy into the basic principles, then you're just not going to be accepted as a member. There are communities in which, which I think are more open-minded. Um, and they're more open-minded because... They're built on the principle that, uh, that it's okay to, to question authority, right? So you know, philosophers are like that. If you go to a, a meeting of philosophers, you'll find everybody arguing with everybody all the time. And then they go out for drinks. That's just what they do, right? Um, courts of law are like that, where it's sort of your job as a lawyer to make an argument. Um, and one that disputes the argument made by the other side. Um, My experience with science is that science is like that, too. You're actually encouraged um, to question what it is that people are saying, to question truths that have been long held. And in fact, if you can bring something new to the table, something that really changes the conversation um, and, and makes people um, question uh, things that have been long held by scientific community, that's often, uh, that, that's often a ticket to success. That will often bring you fame and fortune. Um, so, you know, I think good uh, teams of, of medical experts are open to being questioned. So it's not easy. Nobody likes to be wrong. And nobody likes to be questioned, particularly by someone who's not in authority. But I do think that there are social groups which have developed value systems that encourage that kind of, of questioning.
2: We're going to take a quick break. Um, We're going to pick this up um, when we come back. We're talking today with Stephen Sloman. He is the author of The Knowledge Illusion Why We Never Think Alone, which he wrote with Philip Fernbach. We'll be
0: back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: The Voice America Live Events channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events
0: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
2: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Stephen Sloman. He is the co-author of the book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. So, Stephen, before the break, we're talking about... you know, community knowledge, and then also questioning that, and you said that uh, part of science is questioning the truths in science. One of the things that that drew me to your book was actually something that I deal with every day uh, treating chronic Lyme disease, which is completely denied where where I live across Canada and uh, pretty much a lot of the world, where even though we have proof that this exists and people are suffering, um, there is a, a a great amount of denial in the medical community that that this is there and i was really happy to actually have it explained to me in your book even though you didn't talk about lyme disease and that wasn't your topic but why it's still denied by the entire community when it's such a debilitating illness and so important that we actually change that thought process
3: yeah well yeah i'm i'm actually shocked to hear that uh that the medical community denies Lyme disease. Um, I actually live within half an hour of Lyme, Connecticut, where Lyme disease was first discovered. And as far as I know, people around here are very aware of it, and I think doctors treat it all the time. So I don't know what's going on in Calgary, and I have no idea about the science. But what's clear is that on just about any issue, people develop ideologies, meaning they develop ideas in association with other people, and people reinforce other people's beliefs. Um, So let me tell you about a brief study. Let me briefly tell you about a study I did with uh, a student at Brown, a guy named Nat Rabb, um, we told people that scientists have discovered these scientific phenomena. We had actually made up the phenomena. They don't actually exist. But we, we told people that scientists have discovered a system of, of helium rain, as an example. Um, and we also, in one, to one group, said, um, scientists have discovered this system. They They haven't yet explained how it works. They just know that it exists. Um, so they don't understand how it works. How well do you understand how it works? And not surprisingly, people said, I, I don't understand how it works at all. I, even the scientists don't understand, and you just told me about it. Another group of people, we said scientists have discovered the system of helium rain. Um, they fully understand how it works. How well do you understand how it works? And now people, that they understood a little bit. It's not like they fully understood, but they, there was a little bump in their sense of understanding by virtue of the fact that the scientists understood, right? They couldn't possibly have understood a thing. We hadn't told them anything about how this system of helium rain works. And yet, merely the fact that scientists understood made them feel like they understand. So this happens in communities all the time. Right? that the, the way it works productively is, is when there's an expert who really knows the answer, and that expert says they understand, and then they pass that sense of understanding to everyone else, as if understanding itself is contagious, like a disease. Right? And if there's true understanding behind it, then that's fine, and that works very well. But when there isn't true understanding behind it, so if, for instance, I think I understand because you tell me you understand, that you think you understand because I think I understand, right, then we essentially have a house of cards where everybody thinks they understand just because everyone else thinks they understand and nobody really understands. And unfortunately, we see that all the time. There are lots of issues in which, in fact, there is some real understanding, and I think Lyme disease is one of them, although I know enough to know it's incredibly complicated. Um, But there is real understanding, but another group, there's a sort of reaction to that in which people build this deep sense of understanding by virtue of the fact that everybody around them thinks they understand, even though there's no basis to it.
2: So you know, you know, it's I'm somewhat conflicted. um, Obviously, um, with, with the community knowledge. I see how important that is, just like a beehive, where this is how we function as a community and societies. And you know, we have people that are specialties at what they do: doctors, plumbers, uh, you know, ambulance driver, all that. EMTs—they are all specialists in what they do, and that helps us as a community to be really good at what we are. But then, if we if we don't question that, we don't have the change that we need to work around certain things. So, it, you know, it, it seems we need the community, but we also need to question it, is that?
3: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there is a real tension there. So just to sort of restate what you just said, um, there, there's a division of cognitive labor. There has to be a division of cognitive labor because nobody can be good at everything. And given how sophisticated the world we live in is we depend on all kinds of specialists in order to accomplish things and by the way I think that this has been true for millennia I mean I think this is the state of humankind we've all there's always been a division of cognitive labor and we've always been specialized as individuals so that's right we we have to live in a community of knowledge. We have to depend on the knowledge of others, but we also have to be willing to question. Um, And because sometimes there are myths that get perpetuated. Sometimes cultures, societies, communities develop beliefs that don't have any foundation, in fact, and we have to be willing to call our, our society out on these things and in fact that's why science developed in, in large part right in order to have a firm foundation for calling things into question that's what science fundamentally is it's, it's a process that says Think, I, I can be wrong right that's what distinguishes science from faith um that it has the possibility of being wrong uh And and so, you know, I think we just, that's a tension we have to live with. We have to accept that we can't know everything ourselves and we do have to question. But we also have to respect expertise, right? So a a lot of... Success in society, I believe, comes down to being able to identify true expertise, being able to avoid charlatans, being able to avoid people who are just um, pushing their own self-interest, and finding the people who are truly experts in the domain we care about.
2: Well, in this... Um you know, in my own experience when we're just looking at the I guess the healthcare system of I we need the community of knowledge because it's very important to have people that have specialized in in all those areas. But I myself with chronic Lyme disease have seen pretty much every specialist and not one of them will recognize Lyme disease. So there is that part of me that questions it but also I understand, especially after reading your book, I understand more where they're coming from, because they're trusting their own community of knowledge that just hasn't changed yet, and and I think that they're um, they're trusting the community of knowledge instead of questioning it themselves.
3: It sounds like what you have to do is come to New England, where I live, where (laughs) people do accept Lyme (laughs) (laughs) disease, and know how to treat it. And I actually mean that seriously. I mean if you are living in a community and you are absolutely convinced that the community's norms uh are not accurate uh and, and that you see things more clearly than the resident experts, then sometimes the only solution is to join a different community. Right. When mm-hmm. when people lose religious faith uh, that's what they inevitably have to do. They have to go and find a different community, another community of faith or something else. And unfortunately, medicine can can be just like that.
2: So when we're looking at a situation like this, um, obviously this is where um, technology or Internet uh, is extremely helpful for us, but also can... Can cause problems because there's a lot of misinformation and how do we know what community to trust and what information to trust?
3: Yeah that's a tough one. Um, Adrian Ward did this study where he uh, looked at people, he he asked doctors and nurses to evaluate People who had researched their symptoms on the internet versus people who had not researched their symptoms on the internet and the doctors and nurses felt that the people who had researched their symptoms on the internet felt they, they understood their symptoms much, much better than people who hadn't researched the symptoms. Um, and then when they asked the doctors and nurses whether their information was accurate or who, who actually knew more about the symptoms, the doctors and nurses said the two groups were the same. So the difference between the groups was just that one thought they understood better by virtue of having researched their symptoms on the Internet, but the experts felt that they hadn't actually learned anything useful now that's you know there are issues with the study it may be that the people who had actually successfully diagnosed their symptoms um, had treated them successfully and didn't even go see the doctors and nurses because they didn't need to um, so how do we know which information is accurate? Well, I mean, that's, that's a general problem, right? If you're having a conversation with someone, even if you're taking courses um, at college or reading books, uh, you always are in this, pro- in this situation where you have to distinguish good information from bad information. And, and it's, it's a difficult problem. I think there are some useful cues. Uh, I think real experts tend to actually be less confident about what they're saying because the fact is that these issues are complicated and there's rarely a silver bullet. There's rarely a single answer to every problem. And so someone who admits the complexity, someone who doesn't feel absolutely confident they have the answer for you... um, is probably more likely to be correct than somebody who is incredibly confident and absolutely sure that they know what the right answer is. Um, another you know, source of information is how accurate that person has been in the past. Uh, so if you know other people who can vouch for that person, that's obviously useful. Credentials matter right? It's despite what some people think, it's actually really hard to get a degree in medicine at a major university. And if you succeeded, then that's some evidence that you're disciplined and that you've you've learned things and that you have real knowledge to bring to bear. So those are just a couple of the cues we use. Again, I don't don't think there's any simple answer to this question. We have to make an assessment of whether we should trust someone, just like when we meet someone on the street and are deciding whether uh, to invite them home for dinner. We have to make an assessment of whether there's someone we can trust. Uh, that's something that human beings aren't so bad at, actually, most of the time. Well, before last year's presidential election, I was actually much more confident <laughs> that people were good at doing that than I think now. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so that, I guess that brings us a little bit to to politics of... Um, how politicians are using this information as well um obviously there there's a with right now in America, there's a certain amount of um, thinking that they know everything um when in fact uh sh- i i i think and you mentioned this in your book that a good politician will actually discuss. Things with all of the specialists in an area before making a decision on, on how to, to proceed, which I guess is something that that we could all do anyway.
3: Yeah, I think that sort of defines good leadership: taking mm-hmm. advantage of expertise in the community. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think just in general in our lives, I was, you know, before I make a decision, I I like to have at least three. Um, Different uh, modes of getting the information to help me with that decision so that I have as much information as I can before I know what the right direction is, as long as it, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. that, does that make sense?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a big part of the problem today is that uh, the evidence on which we're making our Big social and political decisions is suspect. Right? That is. There's a lot of fake news around, and there are, and there's a lot of people saying things that um, may not be true. People on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, in, information is a scary thing, and while it's always been true that. Politicians, um, and not just politicians, but everybody, is selective about which information they share. Uh, Things have really come to a head, in large part, I think, because of the Internet and social media. It's just so much easier to send a false message around to lots and lots of people, and it's so much easier to develop... Electronic systems to make sure that messages get passed around to as many people as possible, whether they're true or false. Um, and it's not always trivial to distinguish uh, truth from falsity. I must say that often I. Don't think it's as hard as people make it out to be. So if I see a claim on Facebook or something or on some Internet site, I actually find most of the time it's relatively easy to find. If it's a factual claim about, say, the number of people who appeared at an inauguration, um, it's relatively easy to find out what the truth is. And so the important thing is to check Right? That's the really important thing. It's imp- the most important thing, I think, is to live in a community in which it's okay to check, and to live in a community in which when one person says something, other people feel free to say, are you sure about your facts? Or, I came across that recently, and it turns out that that's not quite true, because there's just a, a lot of garbage information being passed through all communities, you know, through liberal communities, through conservative communities. Um, but beyond, but the truth is there is also a lot of sophisticated fake news that's being passed. There are, there are people who know how to make falsity look like truth. And that's what's you know that that is scary and I know that there are a lot of people I know for instance Facebook and Google and lots of academics and lots of people in Silicon Valley are focused on this problem and trying to find ways of distinguishing truth from falsity to make sure that to well to try to increase the likelihood that uh, we're more likely to see good news good, true things and false things you know, part of me though thinks that people don't actually use information to a great extent. People uh, are limited in um, how much evidence they can take into account and explain. You know. The, the way we say it in the book is that rather than thinking about people as rational processors of information, we should think about people as channeling their community. So to a large degree, when, when we see fake news, I don't think... I think it might be doing less damage than we think because even though it will be passed around and even though it will reinforce false beliefs, people are going to have those both false beliefs anyway. You know, we, we tend to believe and espouse ideas that the people around us believe and espouse um, rather than coming to conclusions ourselves for the most part. And so there's a sense in which I think that the false information that's running around social media is just a form of flag-waving. And people are going to wave flags regardless, you know, whether we distinguish true information from false information.
2: Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Stephen Sloman. He is the author of The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. Sorry, the co-author. Uh, we'll be back shortly. I'm going to take a quick break. <laughs>
1: The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Hi everybody, welcome
2: back. We're talking today with Stephen Solomon. He is the co-author of the *Knowledge Illusion: Why We Never Think Alone*. So, Stephen, um, can you explain the the difference between uh, intuition and deliberation?
3: Sure. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think I've given the impression that um, I don't think anything is going on in the at all, and uh, the fact is the brain is is, is a very, very impressive device, Um, and and I do appreciate that. Uh, So, when we think about human thought, I I think we have to think about it in in terms of two separate systems that are operative. What we've been talking about so far, I, I call deliberation, and deliberation is what we usually think of when we're thinking about thinking right it's how we process information in a way that we're conscious of so when we deliberate about something we might you know weigh evidence one way or another or weigh the pros and cons when we're making a decision if we're uh, adding up numbers we're conscious of those numbers we're adding up and we're conscious of how we're going about adding them up so that's a form of deliberation i really like the word deliberation because it has a second meaning as well which is a sort of conversation right juries deliberate um groups of people deliberate over issues and I actually think that's the fundamental nature of deliberation that's the form of thought that I would say is communal Um, it's this stuff that we actually that we're actively thinking about as opposed to intuition right so the brain is a really sophisticated machine for delivering intuitions where by an intuition, I mean a response to something where we're not aware of how we came to that response, right? So if we just, you know, take a look to our right, we're going to see something. And whatever we see, we'll know immediately what it is. So, you know, I see a picture on the wall, and it's a picture of a person. And I know that. Immediately, I don't understand the cognitive processes that, that went on, or at least I'm not aware of the cognitive processes that went on in my brain that allowed me to identify this as a picture of a human being. I just have this specialized machinery that delivers a response. And if I ask you, what's 7 plus 5? I bet you, you have that specialized machinery that delivers the response of 12. You don't know where, where it came from. It came from memory, right? But memory is uh, is very sophisticated, um, and it allows us to see all kinds of patterns. So sophisticated. Expert chess players, for instance, um, see all kinds of patterns on the chessboard by virtue of the fact that they have really sophisticated intuitions about chess. And radiologists have really sophisticated intuitions about x-rays. They see things in x-rays that I just can't see. And, you know, football commentators have incredible intuitions about football. They see patterns on the field that I just can't see. So there are these different processes. And the way, you know, one interesting question is how they relate to one another. How does intuition relate to deliberation? And one form of interaction between them and i think the most common form is that we're thinking about we're deliberating about things and that's those things we're thinking about spark intuitions so if we're around the dinner table one person says something and that causes somebody else to remember a joke say so their intuitive system is delivering that joke which then gets shared around the table, which causes other people's intuitive systems to respond. So deliberation is, in a sense, making use of the intuitive systems of of everybody around. And uh, sometimes our intuitions are are really good, if they're well-honed, if we're well-honed experts, for instance. And sometimes they're not so good. Uh, we sometimes are biased in the way that we perceive things. Um, And so sometimes deliberation serves as a corrective on intuition. But not always. If everybody has the same biased perception, like if everybody um, sees a group of people as possessing a property that perhaps they don't possess, you know, people's intuitive systems can reinforce one another through deliberation um, so that the group can come to a very biased view of, say, another group because they're deliberating in such a way that they're sharing these biased perceptions.
2: So I think that got... uh, um complicated. <laughs> Which oh, I the think mind is,
3: is complicated. It's absolutely yeah. complicated. I definitely am going to have a job for, for a while.
2: Yeah, um, that's a, I think the point is, is how complicated we are. I mean, we're making it sound simple that we have this community of knowledge and, and we don't really know what we don't know, but at the same time, there's stuff that we do know.
3: Right? There's, there's certainly stuff that we do know. I mean, we, look, the, the whole idea of a community of knowledge is that we each make our own narrow contribution. So we have to know enough to make that narrow contribution, right? And, and then there are other questions about... Um, how it is that humans are capable of living within a community of knowledge. Because we're, we're the only organisms that can do it. In fact, I think we're the only cognitive systems that can do it. I don't think that we, we make use of machines, we make use of the internet, for instance, but the internet isn't part of our community in the same way that our friends and our mothers are parts of our community, because the Internet doesn't share our goals. The Internet doesn't share our intentions. So there's a whole set of really big and difficult questions about what it is that's in the head that allows us to share things with one another, to share goals and intentions. There's a psychologist at Columbia named Tori Higgins who says we share reality with one another. That's what makes humans uh, distinct. And how we do that remains an open question.
2: Hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that definitely gets you thinking. Um, One thing you talk about in your book is um, how we think, or you call it causal reasoning. Uh, What is that?
3: So, the mind. you, You can ask the question: What are the principles by which intuition works, and what are the principles by which we deliberate? Right? Like, is there a logic? Is there a language that we use? In order to perceive things, in order to make inferences. Every computer has a language and so you might imagine that the human mind also has a language. And what we propose in the book is that the language of the mind is the language of causation. That is the language of understanding how things work. The language that tells us what makes the world go around another way to say it is it's the language of cause and effect right people can do things like predict the future to some degree right like i expect the sun to rise tomorrow and we have these causal understandings. scientists have given us a causal understanding of why the sun will rise tomorrow So in order to understand what scientists have told us, we have to have a system capable of causal reasoning. Or if your father-in-law has said something rude and you want to blame him, then you have to engage in some causal reasoning to understand why it is what he said was rude what what was the effect of what he said such that somebody else was offended so whether we're talking about human behavior or we're talking about physical mechanisms or talking about medicine I mean understanding how the body works is a causal question, it's a very complicated causal system so the claim we make is that the language by which the mind operates is the language of causation it's not the language of arithmetic, and it's not the language of logic, which a number of philosophers and psychologists have suggested. And these days, there are actually a lot of people who think that it's the language of probability that we should use to describe the mind. And we're saying that's, that's not right either, that instead of all these other options, what we should be thinking about is the language of causality.
2: Um, we're um, going to have to close the show, leaving everybody with all of that to think about. Um, Is there any way that someone can get a hold of you or or your book if they have more questions about this?
3: Sure. Um, So the book is available uh, hopefully at your favorite bookstore, Um, but it's also available on Amazon, uh, it's available on Amazon.com, and it's also available at Amazon.ca. I know that because it was sold out for a short time, but I don't <laughs> think that's any longer a problem. Um, and if they want to ask me questions, um, I, they can always email me. I hesitate to give my email address out on the air, but I'm actually... <laughs> findable on the internet. And um, I'm certainly uh, open to contact. You have my email address and presumably mm-hmm. they can contact they you. They can
2: contact yeah. me, yeah.
3: Okay. And you can forward me any questions and I'm certainly happy to um, entertain um, any ideas and, uh, and, and questions and conversation about what we've talked about.
2: Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today. I actually enjoyed uh, the show and your book. I think it helps to understand a lot of things more why we do what we do. So thank you so much.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate your time.
2: Today we were talking with Stephen Sloman, and the book um, that he wrote with Philip Fernbach is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to make today
1: a great day